Amen. Lord, blessed be your name. Your name is worthy to be worshipped, to be praised. Your name alone should be magnified and lifted up. Lord, we pray right now as we go to this time in your word, administer to every heart that is here. We love you. We praise you. We're desperate for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you will need one. Amen. Raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. And as a matter of fact, if you need that Bible, if it's if you don't have one at home or you like that one better, please take it as our gift. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we need to be in God's Word every single day. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what has become known at the church office as the mini-series, 1 Corinthians 15. They'd be telling me, Jesus rose from the dead in three days, Pastor Dave, how come it took you four weeks to teach about it? You know, usually we go through a lot of scripture at a time, but you know what? The reality is that with the resurrection is such a obviously very significant event. We're taking our time to make sure we have a clear understanding of its significance. So to catch you up real quick, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick up in verse 50 this morning. But what we have seen so far, just real briefly, is that Corinth was a city that was very wicked and godless. Paul had planted a church there. He had been away from them for about five years. He had received word from the house of Chloe, where the church, one of the places where the church was meeting, that the church, many of the believers, had fallen away from God. They started to get caught up in the things of the world. They started to pattern themselves after Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city that was filled with idol worship and sexual immorality. The Christians started suing each other. They started using their liberty, their, quote, liberty in Christ, and didn't care who they stumbled. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. Basically, they'd just really taken their eyes off of God and been conformed more and more to the world. And it just broke Paul's heart, no doubt, to hear that. And he writes this letter back to them to get their eyes back where they need to be. Because Corinth was a godless place, the church in Corinth became more and more godless all the time. And the application for you and I is very clear. That we can either have an impact on the world or we can be impacted by it. We can either be salt and light here in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz means Holy Cross. And we can either have an impact on this place, being salt and light, being, again, examples for, for Christ to a lost and dying world, or we can just go with the flow and be like the world. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And so he writes this letter to them, and he gives them instruction on how to have a godly marriage, how to you know, live life set apart to God, how not to compromise in their faith. And when we get to chapter 15, I believe, as I've said these last couple of weeks, that I believe this is the main reason that all the other problems exist. Because they had began to doubt the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, we've said this the last couple of weeks, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Amen? Without the resurrection, we are hopeless. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. And so they began to doubt the resurrection, and I believe that when we begin to doubt the essentials of the Christian faith, that's when everything else falls apart. And that's why we see a world today where we have, quote, churches that have, are so far away from God because they doubt the very inerrancy of Scripture. They doubt that the whole Bible comes from God. They doubt the resurrection. They doubt, oh, the, the, the Old Testament, those are just stories. Those things didn't really happen. You know, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Oh, yes, it does. And He is a risen and living Savior. Amen? 
And that's why he is unique and he alone is God and all the other, quote, gods of this world are not gods because they died and they did not get up. Amen? And so we serve a risen and a living Savior. And so far in chapter 15, he first emphasized the truth of the resurrection. He talked about all the evidences that Jesus Christ indeed had risen from the dead, including that he was seen by over 500 people at one time, that dead people got up out of the ground and went into the city, that he had prophesied repeatedly that he would raise on the third day, that the tomb was empty. He then moved on to talk about the power of the resurrection in his own life. He said, not only is it true that Jesus rose from the dead, but let me tell you that the power of the resurrection has transformed my life. And if you remember the story, Paul was on the road to Damascus, and on that road he was on his way to persecute and even kill Christians. He had letters in hand. He was zealous for the law and zealous for Judaism. And on the road to Damascus, he got knocked off his high horse when literally the Lord appeared to him and put him on the ground, and he was blinded. And you love his quick conversion because he says, Who are you, Lord? That's a good thing, Lord, you know, and now he's, he says, who are you, Lord? And immediately he begins to follow the true and living God. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Paul begins to serve the Lord, and so he writes back to Corinth saying, look, not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but he impacts the life of every person who will turn to him. My life has been impacted by a risen and living Savior, not a dead block of wood. Amen? Not a dead idol of this world. But not a, not a man, not any man, but literally Almighty God made manifest in the flesh who suffered and died in my place and rose from the dead proving himself to be God. And so that's the God that we serve. He then talked about the importance of the resurrection. He said if Jesus isn't, ri isn't risen, our faith is worthless. He is not God. Our sins are not forgiven and we have no hope of heaven. So again, this is not something that can be debated within the church, though many, quote, churches do. And as I've said to you very clearly, that if they deny the resurrection, they are not a church. It's not a church. They don't know God, because you cannot know God and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He then talked about the fruit of the resurrection, that since Jesus is risen, He is God. He is holy. Our sins have been paid for. And praise God, we can have lives that are transformed now with the promise of heaven as well. Now last week, he talked about the promise of the resurrection to come. Now this is our resurrection. We know that Jesus is risen, but now he talked about the promise that we too will not just go, die and lay in the ground. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christians die well. Amen? We'll talk a little more about that this morning. We should be blessed and encouraged to know that, there's a, that there is a yet another resurrection to come. And at the same time, that anticipation of the fact that there is an eternity, that there's something beyond this life, we should realize that, again, this life is but a vapor, and you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive. Amen? Tell that to people all the time. They're, they're so pursuing the things of this world, and I say, look, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive. You're going to be out of this body a lot longer than you were in it. But what we do right now counts for eternity. And so we saw last week that he really talked and emphasized to them their, that, that by rejecting the resurrection, the fact of their unbelief, they were doubting eternity as a whole. He said to them, why do you continue to baptize then if there's no resurrection? Why then do the apostles go out and, and face persecution daily if there is no resurrection? 
Why is it that I've been thrown to the lions? Now remember that one of the main things going on in Corinth were these Epicurean philosophers. This is a Greek city, and the, you know, the Greeks were into philosophy. And the Epicurean philosophers taught, you know, one of their famous sayings that, that people still quote today was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so that was their statement, and they were living amongst us, so the Christians started to hear that, and they heard it enough that they started to live like it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And, you know, as John Lennon would say, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, but John Lennon knows there's a heaven now. Amen? And so it doesn't matter what you imagine. It doesn't matter what you think. There is a God. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And we'll either spend eternity with the Lord or eternity separated from Him. And so he questions their unbelief. And then finally last week, after questioning their unbelief, he answered their doubts about the resurrection. You know, we can all do this. The Corinthians were saying, well, how is he going to raise him from the dead? I mean, once they go into the ground, their bodies turn to dust, and how is he going to put their bodies back together again? And this is us with our finite minds trying to understand infinite God. We try to say, well, if I don't understand it, it couldn't possibly be true. Well, when I was two years old, I didn't understand anything. And there was a lot of truth, Amen. And aren't you glad when you're too old, that ain't, I don't understand it, so it can't happen, right? But the reality is that we, in comparison to God, are a lot, are a lot dumber than a two-year-old is in comparison to us, amen? And God is so great and so incredible and so awesome. And you know, if He can speak the stars into the sky, He can create a resurrected body from anything He wants or nothing at all, amen? And so they come to Him and say, well, how are, you gonna, how are they going to raise the dead? How are they going to put their bodies back together? How is that going to happen? You know, the great doubters of the Corinthian church. How will their bodies come back to life? And they didn't understand again because they had limited in their own mind. And you know what? I love the example that God's given us in nature. That you drop something ugly into the ground and something beautiful comes up. You drop a, a bulb into the ground and a beautiful flower comes up. You drop seeds into the ground and beautiful things come out of the ground. But before that beautiful thing can come up though... That ugly thing that's planted in the ground must die. And we talked last week about the fact that what you plant in the ground is not what comes out of the ground. You don't plant a seed and have a big seed come out, right? And so when we've dropped into the ground, praise God, it's not going to just be a better version of this body. It's going to be a different body altogether, amen? And aren't you glad? Praise God. I'm looking forward to the improvements, right? I won't have to go to the gym. I won't have to go on Jenny Craig. Nothing. Right? God's going to give me a perfect body, a heavenly body, and I'm looking forward to that day. And so he was rebuking them, and then finally he contrasted Adam and Jesus. He talked about how in Adam we were all born, and we, we carry around an Adamic body right now. A body that's been tainted by sin. Why do we, why do our bodies, you know, stink? Let's face it. Amen? If you didn't shower for a week, how'd you be smelling right about now? Right? Some of you daily, Right? And that's because we're dying. Our bodies are dying. Our bodies are falling apart because it's a part of the Adamic nature. And so we have to take care of them. And we are. God's called us to take care of this temple, the Holy Spirit. But also understand very clearly that these bodies are dying. And no matter how hard you try, the results are in. One out of every one person dies. Amen? And so this body is fading away because we were all born into Adam, but praise God, when we're born again, we're born again into Christ. And the new body He gives us is going to be a resurrected body, much like the body 
the resurrected body that he had when he rose from the dead. And you know what? It's not going to die, and it's not going to feel pain, and it's not going to be hungry, and it's not going to wither and fade like the bodies that we have now. So we have Adam, sin, and death, and then through Jesus we have salvation and life. So now the final eight verses of the resurrection, the mini-series, as I've been picked on at the office, all right? The final eight verses, or nine verses here, what we're going to see is a very significant thing in the life of a believer. Something that many of you, no doubt, may be confused about. My heart would be when you leave this place this morning that there is no more confusion. And the main thing we're going to talk about this morning is the rapture of the church. Now this is an actual event that will take place. We're going to talk about that. So this morning I titled the message, In the Twinkling of an Eye. And this morning we're going to look at this final portion of the chapter on the resurrection. Again, we've seen the truth of the resurrection, that there's irrefutable proof that Jesus has risen from the dead. We saw the power of the resurrection to transform the life of the individual. We saw the importance of the resurrection. If Jesus is not risen, there is no salvation. We saw the fruit of the resurrection, that Jesus is indeed God, and that our sins are forgiven. And then we saw again, him exhorting them over their unbelief that Jesus Christ, again, is risen and that we too will have resurrected bodies one day. So this morning we'll see that to enter into heaven, we too must leave these bodies behind. These bodies that have been corrupted by sin, conformed to their environment, sinful, fallen, that God, praise God, that He's going to give us new bodies. We're going to leave these, these old ratty things behind. Praise the Lord. Amen. And we're going to talk about the fact that we have to let go of what is corrupt to put on incorruption. We need to leave this behind because there can be no sin in heaven, as we will see. If we had sin in heaven, you'd have earth part two, right? One sin in heaven would destroy the place. And God can't have sin in His presence because He's perfect, holy God. The reason that the world's in the mess that it's in today is one sin in the Garden of Eden, and we've all been born into it. So we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior because there can be no sin in heaven. That's why Jesus paid the price. He took all of our sin. And even this corrupt body cannot enter in to that place of incorruption and holiness. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're just going to look at, again, two two major points. We're going to see, again, him talking about the, the rapture of the church and then the victory that you and I have over sin and death. And praise God for that. And I'm looking forward to heaven. I don't know about you. Amen? Let me just say something about heaven. We'll look at the verses here. But you know what? Heaven is going to be way better than you think. No matter how great you think heaven's going to be, it's going to be way better than that. I'll never forget being with, with Don McClure, who was my pastor in San Jose when I was still a youth pastor. He used to take all the pastors up to Yosemite every year. And we were looking out at this beautiful sight. Dome of the Rock, and we got pictures taken. This beautiful place up at Yosemite. We're all sitting there, and we're all going, wow, this is beautiful. Look at God's creation. And Pastor Don, being subtle as he can be, said, you know, and compared to heaven, this is a dung heap. You know, this is a pile of rock. This is a pile of garbage compared to heaven. The most beautiful thing on earth is nothing compared to what we're going to see in heaven. And what's great about heaven is where we're all, we will all know as we are known where all our questions will be answered. We'll have complete understanding of God's plans and purposes for all that He did. 
There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more grief, no more loneliness, sin, pride, anger, envy, bitterness, greed, and lust will all be wiped away. And heaven, whose beauty, again, is beyond imagination, where gold is asphalt. Amen? Did you know that? In heaven, gold is asphalt. The streets are paved with gold. I don't think we're going to be walking around going, wow, look at these streets. Because it's going to be like asphalt in heaven. Where it talks about rubies and diamonds and jewels. I mean, they're going to be all over the place like rocks. But you know what is incredible to me? As beautiful as that place is, I don't think we'll even notice the beauty of it because what we will be so mesmerized by is the glory of Almighty God that will make all of it pale in comparison. Amen? I'm going to see my Savior face to face, and I can't wait. I'm going to see Almighty God. That just blows me away. How about you? And you know what? We need to have more of an eternal focus as believers. You know, I've heard people say, well, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I, I haven't met that person yet. What I mean is people that are so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. We're so focused on the world and our jobs and our careers and our stuff and all the things of this world that we have very little time for that which is eternal. But right now counts for eternity. And again, I'm looking forward to hugging my Savior. I'm looking forward to looking into His eyes and seeing Him face to face. I'm looking forward to the fact that we'll never have to say goodbye again, ever. I have Christian family who are in heaven right now. I look forward to seeing them. And I look forward to knowing I will never have to say goodbye again. That we'll never have to go home. We can just hang out in fellowship forevermore in perfect bodies. It's going to be great. And more importantly, God's going to be there. Amen? So now, let's take a look at these last nine verses. And again, I want to talk as Paul reveals that this transformation can come at any moment, even prior to death. This transformation from this dead carcass we're dragging around into a resurrected body, from being in a place you know, on earth where, where sin abounds to being in heaven where there is no sin. And that can happen at any moment. And then the second half of the last nine verses, he's going to talk about in light of this heavenly promise of the fact that there is no death, that you and I should have eyes focused on eternity. Again, that's so important as we live out this day-to-day life. So look at verse 50, beginning there. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now our present bodies cannot move into the kingdom of God because they have been corrupted by sin. In our present state of infirmity and decay, if we came into heaven, we would corrupt it. And so it gives us a different perspective on death. Because when we realize that if we came in these bodies, we would just corrupt heaven. So what is death? It's simply moving day for believers, amen? We leave this corrupt body and take on incorruption. And so for Christians, we should die well, because all we're doing is losing something that's dying and gaining eternity, amen? We close our eyes on earth and we open them up in glory. And so, can I tell you, if I die before any of you guys, you know, I told my wife, just put me in a hefty bag, leave me on the curb, and don't worry about it, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be with Almighty God. And I'm not going to be thinking about you. How about that? I mean, I'm going to be in heaven. And when I'm looking at the, where, where's my, path? you know, people say, oh, they're looking down on us. They're not looking down on you. Because they're looking at God, Amen. 
Why would you look down on, you know, what's going on in this, pl- this mess of a planet when you can look at God, amen? I'll see you guys when you get here. I'm looking at God, amen? And so that's our focus, and that's our passion. And we need to leave this, this dead body behind for death. Again, for the believer, death is simply a way of leaving this earthly tabernacle and moving into our heavenly bodies. Exchanging that crusty, brown, ugly thing that gets dropped into the ground for the beautiful flower that comes from it. Amen? And again, we have no idea how incredible heaven is going to be. The word there for corruption, or does corruption inherit incorruption, the word corruption is perish, ruin, or decay. And it says it cannot inherit immortality. That which falls apart cannot inherit that which does not. That which is falling away and decaying and impacted by sin cannot inherit that which has never been touched by sin. That's why our spirits will move We're born again, new creations in Christ. We're going to leave this dead nature behind and this dead body behind. And that sounds like a win-win program to me. Amen? I'm so thankful that I'm going to leave behind this nature, this dead man I carry around every day. You know, we battle with flesh, not with flesh and blood, right? It's a spiritual battle every day. But we carry this dead body around, this flesh that wants us to pursue things of the flesh. And it will be gone. And we get to heaven. Well, that struggle will be no more. There can be no sin in heaven and no body tainted by it. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The word mystery there in Greek, mysterion, is something previously hidden, but now made known. Following Paul's discussion that in death we move to the eternal realm, here he introduces something new to the equation. Here's what he says. It doesn't even have to happen at death. It can happen at death for everybody, for most people that have lived up to this point, it has happened by death, but it's not going to be that way for everybody. Because he says there in that verse, we will not all sleep. That is a euphemism for death. We will not all die, but we shall all be changed. So how in the world can we be changed if we don't die? How is it possible to leave this body behind and be transformed if I don't die? That seemingly is impossible, and again, using our finite minds, it would be. The word there for changed is a a root word where we get the word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. We're going to be changed. You know, caterpillars and butterflies have very little in common. Have you noticed that? Do you ever see caterpillars trying to jump off a roof or fly from branch to branch? Not very successfully, right? They have almost nothing in common. And I believe that that's just how drastic the change is going to be when I leave this dead caterpillar carcass behind and I get my butterfly body in heaven. Not literally. Don't be, oh, Pastor Dave, sir, we're going to be butterflies in heaven. That's not what I said. <laughs> but that transformed body. You know, I'm going to be just new creation in Christ. It's going to be incredible. We already are new creations in Christ inwardly, but we're going to be completely, when we get to heaven, leaving this dead body behind. Again, corruption cannot take on incorruption. We shall not all die, but we will all be changed. Now, how is that possible? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word there for moment is literally atom, like an atom. And what it means there is it's something that is totally an indivisible point of time. The smallest measurable amount of time possible in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. 
And it's not the blinking of an eye, it's the amount of time light takes to be refracted in our eye, which is a lot quicker than that. And it's saying, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, again, another expression for the least conceivable amount of time, all will be changed. Now this is the first reference in the New Testament, in these letters, to the rapture. And we'll talk about that in depth because as I was praying about this and studying this, I think it's very important that we all understand it. So rather than all of us dying, some will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And that is a reference to the rapture. So what is the rapture? What is that exactly? What does that mean? And, and some people struggle and say, oh, I don't believe in the rapture because nowhere in the Bible does it say the word rapture. You ever heard that before? People say that. We're going to refute that in just a second. Now while we take a more in-depth look, when we go through First and Second Thessalonians, we will get there, I promise, okay? Well, or we may be raptured before then and it won't matter. Amen? But... When we get to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we will in great detail look at the rapture. But this morning, I do want to take some time, and I want you to walk out of here with a greater understanding of the rapture. So, what is the rapture? In 1st Thessalonians, don't turn your Bibles, I'm going to share some verses with you, you can write them down. In 1st Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with Him always. Now, the word caught up in that verse, it, one of the translations in Latin is raptus, and it's where we get the word rapture. And so, while it doesn't say rapture in the Bible, it says caught up, and we will be, so if you want to call it the caught up, that's fine with me. Looking forward to the caught up, Amen. Looking forward to the rapture because it's a, it's a snatching away and it says there in those verses that the Lord's going to descend with a shout and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will lie first. But those of us who are alive are going to be caught up. Rapture. We're going to disappear from this planet. And as we're going to see as we continue on, it's going to dra- drastically change everything that's left here on earth. The rapture is the snatching away of every believer upon the earth all of whom will be changed in a moment without going through the process of death. Now, some are confused. The rapture and the second coming of Christ are two different things. Now let me differentiate those for you. Hopefully again, try to make it easy as I can. The rapture is Christ coming for us, and the second coming of Christ is Christ coming with us. At the second coming, there'll be a seven-year time of tribulation between when the church disappears from the planet and the Holy Spirit goes with them. Imagine what the world would be like with no Holy Spirit here and no believers. Well, that's the tribulation. And the church is raptured, snatched away, caught up, and then there's seven years of tribulation like the world has never seen before. At the end of that seven years, we will return with Christ And we will battle the enemies of the Lord, and we know who's going to win that one. Amen? And then he will set up a millennial kingdom where we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. Now that, again, is a picture of the end times. You have the rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Christ. At the rapture, Jesus comes for us, and at the second coming, we come with him. So we come back with him at the second coming coming of Christ. Again, 
we will be snatched up. We will be taken away. And after that, and it even says in the Bible, it's going to be so radical that two will be walking and one will be taken, the other one won't. One, you know, two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one won't. Two women will be in the field, one will be taken, and one won't. And I truly believe it's gonna, it, it will, of course, be the most radical thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, and I believe that is the event that is going to bring about the, the one world government and them all coming together because that's when a, a wheelbarrow full of, bread, of money will buy a loaf of bread, and, it's, and that's when the Antichrist will rise to power. And so we'll talk about that more in a moment. Now at the second coming of Christ, in Revelation, it says, Behold, He comes in the clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him, and all, all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Now the rapture will be done, and people will wonder what happened. When Christ comes back, nobody will wonder what happened. Amen? When He comes back, everything is going to change. In Colossians 3, 4, it says, When Christ who is our life, shall appear, then we also will appear with Him in glory. So when He appears and all mankind see Him, we will be with Him. Again, at the end of this great tribulation. In Jude it says He will come with ten thousands of His saints. In Zechariah it says when He comes back, He will stand in the Mount of Olives, He will split the mountain in two. Now, everybody's going to know when that happens. It's going to radically transform everything. And so, sadly, we know from Scripture that when He returns, is what would be called the Battle of Armageddon, right? And the enemy will literally try to fight God. That doesn't work out too well. Can you imagine? we got to fight God, and sadly, we see it happening today. Let's take God out of our schools. Let's take God out of our our judges' chambers. Let's take God off of our money. Let's quit pledging allegiance to God. Let's get rid of everything to do with God. You know, I, and I'm just going to speak my heart for a second. Some people say, well, you know, we should treat all religions equally. I disagree. The rest of them are a lie. I, you know, our, my daughter goes to a Christian school, and the principal, the, the vice principal, who's now gone, and we just prayed her out of there, praise God. But she, she said, well, yeah, we have Buddhists here, and we have Hindus here, and we just treat it, and we respect their belief. I said, why? Why do you respect? Now, respect them, and love them, and be kind to them, and never be self-righteous or arrogant, but they're dying and going to hell without Christ. It's like if there's a busload of kids driving off a cliff, let's stop it, Amen. Oh, we're going to be respectful of your decision to drive off the cliff. That's not what the Lord would have us do. Amen? And so we see that all other religions are a lie. If you were here on Wednesday, you saw what God thinks about other There are no other religions. Religion, relingara, the word means to relink. Relinking sinful man back to holy God. Buddha cannot relink you back to God. Muhammad can't relink you back to God. The New Age movement can't relink you back to God. Putting your furniture in the right direction and having good chi in your house will not relink you back to God. Amen? It's Jesus Christ alone that can relink sinful man back to holy God. Nothing else can. And again, we're going to come back with Him. We're going to be caught up into heaven by Him, and then we're going to come back with Him. Now, when does it say in that verse that this rapture will take place? When's it going to happen? It says, at the last trumpet. Now, don't have a lot, I'm not going to go into great, but there's a lot of people confused about the rapture because they misunderstand this verse. They say the last trumpet 
equates to the trumpet judgments of God upon the earth in Revelation. Now, there are the people that believe that say that we will be here during the tribulation. Does that sound like something God would do to those whom he loves? I'm going to wipe out the earth, I'm leaving you there while it happens. That's not what's going to happen. And I have scriptural proof for that, we're going to go through that. But this trumpet's going to sound, and those that believe that the church will go through the tribulation believe that this is talking about this seventh or last trumpet of the trumpet judgments. Now let me tell you what's going to happen before the last trumpet of the trumpet judgment sounds, and then I'll tell you why we know this is not what this verse is talking about. But this, these are the seven judgments. Now, these judgments come from God. They come from God. Trumpet judgments poured out upon the earth. The first one that will take place, it says the angels will blow the horns, and the first one that takes place is a third of all the trees and vegetation on the earth will be burned up. The second trumpet will blow, and all the seas of the world will turn into blood. The third trumpet will blow and and a third of the waters on the earth will be turned bitter and will be undrinkable. The fourth trumpet will blow and the sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened by one third. The fifth trumpet will blow and locusts will come out of the pit of the earth and begin to sting men and it will be so painful that they will want to die and they won't be able to. The sixth trumpet will, will sound and one third of all of creation, all of mankind will die in a single day. That will then be followed up by three plagues of fire, smoke, and brimstone that, again, will destroy a third of all mankind and all of this before the last trumpet. Now, that does not make you just hope that that's the last trumpet he's talking about in this verse. Now, let me tell you why you don't need to worry about that. Because in 1 Thessalonians, the trumpet of the rapture is not the trumpet of an angel, which these trumpets are referred to, that angels are blowing these trumpets. What does it say in this verse? The trumpet of whom? Of God. And because it is the trumpet of God, Scripture is very clear that God has not appointed His children unto wrath. Let me read some verses to you. These should comfort you. Romans 5 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So where does the wrath come upon? Those who reject Him. Those who deny Him. Those who turn away from Him. We are His children. How many of you would have your children have a third of their water taken away? And a thir- would you put your kids through that? And we're imperfect parents. Perfect, holy God has not appointed you to wrath, but to salvation. Amen? And he has saved you from the wrath which is to come. And you know what? Let me say, some people say, well, it just doesn't matter where you stand on this. I disagree. Let me tell you why. I believe it's very important that we understand that we are raptured because if we don't understand that, instead of looking for Christ, we're looking for judgments. Instead of looking for Christ, we're looking for the Antichrist. Because if we leave at the end, the Antichrist has got to come onto the scene. You know, the world's population is being wiped out left and right. You know, we've got to look for this guy to be rising to power. And that means that Jesus Christ cannot snatch us away today. It's impossible because the Antichrist isn't in power yet. These judgments haven't come. And it takes away the urgency that you and I would have to serve God here and now. Amen? Do you think he wants us looking for him or for the Antichrist? 
He wants us looking for Christ, amen? And it does impact how you teach all of the Bible. Now, you can disagree with me, and that's okay, and I'll still love you, and you're wrong, but I, I still love you. <laughs> and I still love you. But, you know, I will say this. I will never have a pastor at Calvary Chapel who disagrees with this because I do believe it changes the way you teach the entire Bible. You can be here and disagree with me, and we love you, and God bless you, and we're family, and it's not an essential of the Christian faith, but it is an essential to teach our people in this body. Because if not, we're looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for every conspiracy theory. We're looking for everything. Oh, it's, the sky is falling. We're looking for everything in the world instead of looking for the Savior. Amen? And that transforms everything, and it changes the way we teach the entire Bible. And so it's very important that we understand. Now, there's Old Testament pictures that also prove this to be true. Because we will go through tribulation on the earth, but that tribulation comes from Satan, not from God. Amen? The tribulation and difficulty we go through comes from the enemy. But there's also Old Testament pictures that prove that we will be taken away before the wrath comes. How many have ever heard a lot? Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah. This place is... About as bad as it gets. San Francisco's catching up. But you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is just a place of wickedness. It's where you get the word sodomy. It was filled with overflowing with homosexuality. And the angel of the Lord was coming to destroy it. And Abraham said, you know, but my, my nephew is there. If we can find 50 righteous people, will you save these thousands of people caught up in debauchery and sin? And God, the Lord said, okay, you find 50 righteous, we'll spare you. Well, how about 45? Okay, 45. How about 40? How about 30? Okay, 30. How about 20? Okay, how about 10? Fine. Find 10. I'll spare the entire place. Again, God would not pour out his wrath on thousands to spare 10 righteous. And we know what happens is that the angels go in to visit Lot, and as they go there, what do the men want to do? They, want to have, they literally want to have sex with the angels. Bring them out here. And so what does God do? He removes Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and then turns the place into an ash heap. He rains fire down because they reject him, reject him, reject him. They get what's coming, but before he would do that, he removes Lot out before he brings destruction because God has not appointed those who follow him to wrath. He removed righteous Lot before destroying it, and he said, I will not destroy it if there are ten righteous. Well, Regardless of what you might think, there's a lot more than 10 righteous in Santa Cruz, praise God. So that means he's not going to wipe this place out until he removes the church first, amen? So Lot is a very clear picture of that. A couple other quick ones. What about Enoch? Enoch lived in a time when the entire world was wicked, totally wicked. It says that, they, that every imagination and thought of their heart was evil continually. He lived during the time of Noah. And we know what happened, that God would end up flooding the earth. But before he did, it says that Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. You know what happened to Enoch? He got caught up. He got raptured. He's a total picture of the church. Before the flood came, Enoch was whisked away. A picture yet again that God has not appointed us to wrath, but he will rescue us first before he brings the wrath upon the earth. You know what else? I believe that when people teach that God's going to pour out His wrath upon us, that it's contrary to the nature of God. Because He is a God of love and grace and mercy, and we're His kids. 
And he will discipline us to bring us back into right fellowship with him. But he will not pour out wrath upon us just because of where we live. He won't do that. He's a loving, a gracious, and a merciful God. The last picture I want to point out. In the book of Revelation, it says it's divided into three sections. The first section talk, talks about things that were. And this is where, where uh, John's writing and he talks about Jesus and his glorified body. In chapters 2 and 3, he talks about things that are. And he talks about the seven churches. Now, I believe this is a picture of seven different church ages. But I also believe that it, it's a picture of, of the types of churches that are in the world today. Some of the churches are churches that have left their first love. Churches that are suffering persecution. Churches that are into worship of Mary. Isn't that interesting? Dead churches. Churches that are lukewarm. And finally, churches that are staying true to the Word. Now, what's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things, I looked up, and behold, a door opened in heaven. And, and the first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, come up here, and I will show you the things that will happen after this. So literally, he talks about the church age, when the church is on the earth, John is speaking, and a trumpet sounds, and the Lord says, come up here into heaven. Now what do you think that's a picture of? Because right after that, you never see the church mentioned again, and guess what? That's when all of the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth against those who've rejected him. So guess what? Come up here before the wrath came in Revelation. So again, a very clear picture. Not a doubt in my mind, and praise God for that. Amen. Amen? Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. I'm out of here before that stuff happens. Now, again, that also should put a, an urgency in my heart because it tells me that that can happen any moment. In Luke 21, Jesus talking about the great tribulation, he says, Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all the things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, pray that you will escape these things. Why would he say, pray that you will escape them, if that's not possible? He said, pray that you will escape them. If you know God, you will escape them. Now, I want to say this. You may be here this morning, and you may not know God. And the only surety of escaping that is knowing God. So if you come to Calvary Chapel one week, and there's like three people here, By the way, our website is rapture-proof. Seriously. All the Calvary chapels have an automated website system where all of our websites will continue to run after the rapture. So that people who maybe visited a church somewhere and didn't know what in the world happened, all the Christians are gone all of a sudden, can go to our website, and, and I'm praying about putting like a rapture message on there. Seriously. If we all disappeared, click this, right? <laughs> if we're not here anymore, click this. Here's what happened. You guys need to be ready. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of the Holy Spirit within the church as being the restraining force that is holding back the power of darkness from completely engulfing and overwhelming the world right now. The moment the church is removed, there will be nothing to hold Satan back from doing what he wants. Doesn't that sound very clearly like the church, again, must be raptured before the wrath can come? We could sit here and I could give you a hundred more verses. But what I want to make clear, I want you to walk out of here understanding the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. To understand that the rapture can take place at any moment and we need to live every day like, it could, like, it, like it's our last. To understand that right now counts for eternity. And the second coming of Christ is when we will return 
with him, and he will set up a millennial kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Praise God that we can, just, we can trust in that. You know, it's one last thing, and then we'll move on to the next verse, is that he also gave parables, Jesus himself. And one of the parables he gave, when he's talking about, he told him to watch and be ready, for that in the hour that you do not think, the Son of Man will come. And then he gave later a parable of ten virgins. you remember that parable? The groom came. These were the bridesmaids that were to be involved in the wedding. Five of them had oil and five of them did not. And when he came, the five that didn't have oil had to run around and try to find oil. And because they were trying to find oil, it was too late. And the ones who did went with them, and they went in, and they shut the door. And these other virgins finally showed up, and it was too late for them to enter in. In the Bible, oil is a type or a picture of what? Whom? The Holy Spirit. And so those who have the Holy Spirit, when the groom comes, we will be snatched away. And those who do not have the Holy Spirit, those who have not been born again, will be on the outside looking in when the church has been raptured away. Again, example after example after example. I can't think of very many things that are more clear in Scripture, and yet people struggle with it. Again, from this point of view, the rapture can happen at any moment. We should be looking for Christ, not the Antichrist. Amen? We should be looking for our Savior who's going to draw us away. We should have our eyes lifted up for Him in anticipation of His coming, not fearing that He might come. If all those judgments were coming before He came, I'd just as soon die. How about you? I'm thinking that's a good alternative to that program, right? Stuff falling from... Ha- you know that one of the, ju- one of the judgments, 120-pound hailstones on fire fall from the sky. Where do you hide from those? I'm glad I'm not going to be here, amen? And my heart is that none of you would be here either. And so, praise God for that. But again, we see very clearly that we need to be looking for Christ, not looking for the, the Antichrist. If you know the Lord, the rapture is a glorious call home. If you don't know the Lord, the rapture will be the beginning of seven of the most brutal years of judgment in human history. Verse 53. You thought it was never going to get done with verse 52. 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Again, for us, we have nothing to fear in death. Death is a defeated foe. Amen? It wasn't defeat, it was was sin was paid for on the cross, but death was defeated in the resurrection. Amen? He triumphed over sin and death. Death is a defeated foe, and there's nothing for us to fear. 2 Corinthians 5 8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I close my eyes on earth and I open them up in glory. The greatest moving day ever. And again, praise God for that promise. Last few verses. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? For For the believer, death has no sting. Again, it's graduation day. It's the most victorious of events. But for the unbeliever, the sting remains passing into eternity with torment and separation. We talked about this last week, but I'm going to quote these guys real quick again. Three different deathbed utterances. People laying on their deathbed. If you're here last week, I apologize for repetition, but it's always good to hear it. Voltaire, an atheist, laying on his deathbed, about to die, cried out, I am abandoned by God and man. And then he said this, his last words, O Jesus Christ, 
oh, Jesus Christ. Atheist, laying on his deathbed. Death has a sting for him. For Thomas Paine, an agnostic, an infidel, what a fool I have been. Oh, God, help me. I cannot bear to be left alone. You know what? For those who die without God, they die alone. And what's on the other side of death is beyond our imagination. But contrast that with D.L. Moody, the evangelist and preacher of some time ago. He said this, laying on his deathbed, Earth is receding. Heaven is descending. God is calling me, and I'm going home. He said, is this death? This is not bad. It's glorious. Do you see the difference? Death has no sting for believers. For us, it is graduation day. Amen? It is the ultimate. When we leave behind this dead carcass and we enter into the presence of Almighty God, death is either a place of of graduation into heaven or eternal torment and judgment. And you know what, guys? Nothing else matters. I told you a few weeks ago, somebody said they didn't come to our church anymore because we just too into God over there. I went, okay, all right. Praise the Lord, I'll write that down. And you know, am I supposed to be hurt by that? We're too into God over there? Praise the Lord. But you know what? It, God is all that matters, amen? I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. How about you? Nobody dies and brings their stuff. And none of that stuff's going to matter in heaven. And praise God, it's all about where we spend eternity and how, we, how faithful we are now. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. That we have sinned against God and we're summoned to, to appear before Him. That's the sting of death. And for unbelievers, they will stand before God and face righteous judgment, the judgment our sin deserves, when they will all stand before Him and be judged for their sin. Do you know that you and I will not have to do that? Did you know that? Why? Forgiven. Forgiven. To die. It is finished, paid in full. Praise God. Amen? The last thing I'm interested in doing is sitting and watching a video of all my sin. How about you? <laughs> no thanks. I'll, I'll, skip that, I'll skip that feature, right? But the world, they're gonna, and they're going to be without excuse. And you know what? We're really without excuse, but praise God that Jesus paid the price that you and I might have eternal life. And when that book that records the sin of mankind is opened up, when the, rec- the sins that should be recorded in my account, the pages are all blank. Stain with the blood of Christ instead. Amen? And praise God that I can die. I have peace in death. Because I know that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to enter into God's presence. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our victory came at the cross. We will stand before Him be given, forgiven. We're all going to live forever. And you've heard me use this analogy. I'm going to close with this before the last verse. But years ago I was on a sales call. I'll never forget this. This this guy that looked kind of rough and the way he was dressed came into this really fancy hotel and I was waiting to meet a, a customer back when I was still working full time. And this guy, they kept coming in and he was real dirty and kind of smelled bad and he was in this row and they kept coming out telling him, why are you here? And finally they kept moving him out and finally he kept coming back in and they literally picked him up and threw him out in the street. I was like, man, that's pretty rough. Well, not long after that, these doors open and all these secret service guys come in and they have these earphones and the whole thing and they come in and right behind them is Jesse Jackson, who at the time was running for president. And so they walk in and they, they usher him into this big room and there's a press conference all set up. And this guy comes wandering back in. He's like, hey, Jesse, hey. And they're, like, and they're grabbing him to throw him back out in the street. And Jesse Jackson, I'm standing there right there, and he turns around and he looks at the, at the man and he says, hey, guys, leave him alone. 
let him in. He's with me. And all of a sudden, the guys who were throwing him in the street picked him up and brushed him off and put their arm around him and brought him in. And where would you like him to sit? Oh, this is good. And you know what, guys? I thought immediately on the spot that when I come before Almighty God on Judgment Day, I'm going to be clothed in the rags of my sin. And I deserve to be thrown out because of who I am. But praise God, as they're, going, as they're ready to throw me out, that Jesus Christ is going to step up and say, it's okay, let him in. He's with me. Amen? You're with, if you're with Jesus, death has no sting. If you're with Jesus, it's a glorious thing. If you're with Jesus, I mean, I can't wait to see my Savior face to face. How about you? Amen? It's going to be incredible. Way more incredible than what we think. But you know what? If you don't have the Lord, you're going to be clothed in your sin, and you'll have no excuse. Because Jesus said, I love you this much. Will you accept what I've done for you? Last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because of who we are in Christ, death has been defeated, but we should stand firm and be unshakable for, for the Lord. Living lives that count for eternity. Because right now counts forever. And the labor that we do for the Lord will outlast this life. So much of what we do with our time, our energy, our money is in vain and meaningless and won't make a, you know, a bit of difference in eternity. And my challenge to all of us today is what have we done this week this month, this year that will count for eternity? What did you do this week that will count for eternity? How much money you made? Again, do your job as unto the Lord, that's great. But will any of that matter in heaven? Absolutely not. You know, be, do those things. But what have you done that will count for eternity? Start by praying for others. Can we all do that? Can we pray for unsaved family and friends? Absolutely. Can we share our faith? Can we use the gifts God has given us for His glory, not for ours? May we be unshakable. With the promise of heaven to come, may we paint eternity on our eyes, and may we live lives, again, in light of eternity, in the realization that we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive, and right now counts for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the promise of heaven. We thank You that You've not appointed us unto wrath. We thank you that we will see you face to face one day. We are so unworthy. You are so gracious. You're so merciful. You're so loving. You're so holy. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to live lives that will count for eternity. Lord, to be more focused on that which really matters. Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that I will not be so caught up in the things that just don't matter. Lord, that our hearts and our passion and our focus We'll be reaching out to those who don't know you, being salt and light to a lost and dying world. And Lord, when you return, when you catch us up, when you snatch us away, may we be found doing your will. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.